Hello, and welcome again to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the topics of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Rich Crispin, one of the leaders of Forefront, and I have the whole Forefront leadership team here with me, Nate, Josh, Cody, and Zach. Recently, we started a new format on the podcast where we have each artist on our team speak for a few minutes to something that's going on either with their art or in the world of the medium of their expertise. So we'll pepper around the room now and follow it all up with a group discussion for you guys of Nate Mancini's recent blog post you can find on our website, How Movie Sequels Succeed or Fail at Character Arcs. But first, let's hear from Nate about what's going on in the world of art and, and faith. Nate? Yes, yeah, so what I wanted to talk about today was a movie called Ben-Hur. And if you guys aren't familiar with the story of Ben-Hur, it's about a Jew who is of high rank who ends up getting disgraced and sent to uh, the galleys um, as a slave on a ship. And then he ends up coming back uh, to his home city of Jerusalem and kind of re-engaging with his adopted brother who wronged him. And uh, after that confrontation, he ends up uh, witnessing Christ's death on the cross. And so it's, it's a great story, and it's one that's been told both on film and uh, in, in literature and in audio um, in many different ways. But the, the film I'm talking about is the 2016 film that came out uh, in August a couple of years ago. And it just recently went to Amazon Prime, so you can watch it for free there if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber. And um, unfortunately, I would say this, this is not a great film. If I could have kind of a rating system for movies, I would say, let's say a one is don't bother. Uh, a two is worth watching if it's free. A three is rent it. And a four is must see it in theaters. Uh, Ben-Hur is probably a two. In other words, it's, it's worth watching if it's free, which it is now on Amazon. Uh, but it's not amazing. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the problem with this movie is there's not a lot of subtext. So um, the characters always say exactly what they mean. There, there's not a lot of stuff going on beneath the surface for you to discover. Everything's kind of out there and bold. Um, so it's not very subtle. And uh, there are other little nitpicks, like Jesus is kind of a regular white guy. Uh, doesn't doesn't look particularly Jewish, and it it, it feels kind of uh, modern Christian culture Jesus. Uh, and so it's it's a great example of a movie where the whole does not equal the sum of its parts, because the parts of the movie are fine. Uh, it even stars like Morgan Freeman in a in a pretty significant role. But when you put all the kind of decent parts together, you end up with a hole that doesn't really work. Um, so I would say this is a movie that's that's worth seeing. Uh, there are great parts of it. There's an amazing you know chariot race, and it's a great story of redemption. Um, it's, it's always great to see a, a movie that incorporates Christ's uh, death on the cross and how that impacts people. Uh, but unfortunately, I do think it's an example of a, a film that's it's kind of a Christian film that fall short um, on the on the art side of things. Cool. So thanks for sharing that with us, Nate. I have seen Ben-Hur a few times, but now I really want to go and look at it again now that I've heard from somebody that knows way more about films than I do. But let's uh, let's hear from Josh. Josh, what do you want to share with us this month? Um, so I, I'm kind of excited, actually. I got a book um, by a guy called Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian. Um, 
and he's both a teacher and I believe a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I think maybe both actually. Um, but a very, very strong thinker. Um, he's a big proponent and student of Carl Jung. Um, and he talks a lot about his, about Jung's writing. Um, and it impacts a lot of what he says. And so he, he kind of came to notoriety. Um, he was posting all his, uh, all his teachings or all his classroom sessions on, um, on YouTube, kind of take the whole lecture just an hour long or whatever it was and put it up on YouTube. And he gained a decent following that way. Um, but then he actually got in the spotlight for some kind of free speech or conservative views that he espoused. Um, and I won't get all the way into that because it's, um, one, it's Canadian politics and it, you know, it doesn't tie directly to us, but then two, it, it's more political than I think um, we care to dive into here. But the the end result being that he's actually gained a much broader audience um, and because of that, he's put out a book that is pretty clearly, um, pretty clearly written for a general audience, whereas his previous book was much more of a textbook um, and a condensation of his thinking for the format maybe of, of a, pro, a professor teaching a class. Um, this one, however, is called 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. Um, and it came out, I want to say the 23rd of this month, maybe, um, pretty recently. And I was, I've been a, a big fan of his videos on YouTube, and I really enjoyed hearing him talk through problems because he does a great job of going all the way down from the minute detail, like here's what you should do in this situation in your life. And then he dials all the way back to, you know, and here's why from a very high up kind of societal perspective. Um, and, and being a student of economics, I always love being able to connect the details to the big picture. Um, and so I really appreciated his writing and the way that he communicated in his spoken lectures. Interestingly enough, though, um, I got this book and I am... A little bit concerned. I'm only one chapter into it so far. I haven't had a, a ton of time to read yet, um, but it's kind of thrown into a stark light the the difficulty that there is in presenting a way that you should live when you don't have a spiritual foundation to base it on. Um, and so that's that's the most recent thing that I've seen. And I would say that that fascination is trying to see someone, in essence, establish a morality without. Um, you know, a morality that is very similar to Christianity, but without Jesus at the center of it. Um, and as far as, you know, again, I'm only one chapter in, so I don't want to bash it before I finished it, but it seems like it's going to struggle a little bit to do so. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of interested to see where that goes. So that's exciting for me just because it's, it feels like it's a very current, um, current thinking from a very, a very powerful thinker. And it's kind of neat to be in on, on the cutting edge of that, um, and so that's uh, that's the latest for me is, you know, again, it's not a Christian book, um, but he does draw a lot from Christianity and from other established religions in some of his viewpoints. Um, and so that's the, you know, that's a, a decent connection. And that was part of why I was interested is to see how he approached you know, the decisions that you make day to day with his perspective, which isn't entirely secular. He does talk about, um, you know, spirituality, maybe more from a metaphysical perspective. Um, but again, he's not coming at it with a core of, of, you know, God's teaching or anything that kind of pertains to a, a higher order. It's always from kind of a, a humanist perspective of, you know, this is the way that the world works as we observe it. Um, and so this is how you should act. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been interesting, but the, uh, the first point for me felt a little bit flat, which was basically, you know, act confident and successful because that will telegraph that you are confident and successful and then people will treat you as though you're confident and successful, which will then help you become, surprise, surprise, confident and successful. 
And I don't know that that necessarily works as easily or as smoothly as he kind of proposes in this book. Um, but yeah, I'll probably have an update maybe next episode um, about, you know, what the other 11 rules are and my thoughts on that. Um, but that's what I've been reading lately. And it's been exciting to diverge from more stories and literature to just kind of some thinking, just straightforward. Here's what you should do. Here's how I think the world works. So that's Jordan B. Peterson. And the, the title of the book is 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. Okay, cool. Thanks so much, Josh. Zach, let's hear from you. What's going on in your world? Hey, so I have a couple things very unrelated to each other. Um, the first one's actually a little bit more sad. Um, I don't know if you guys are fans of the band the Cranberries, but their lead singer Dolores O'Riordan passed away suddenly two weeks ago. and. The, the Cranberries were a band um, mostly recorded in the 90s, very much on the, the edge of the disaffected youth, grunge, political protest music scene. Um, but their music basically was the soundtrack to all of my upbringing. My parents loved them. And every road trip to family members we had a cranberries album playing so i've been just going back and revisiting all all of their music and listening to this woman's voice who who decorated my entire life who is now who's now gone and it's been so so interesting to kind of reflect on like what it is to mourn someone that you never knew but you essentially lived with um so I've been in kind of a, I wouldn't say mourning, but um, just kind of in a, a state of reflection on on this woman's role and her music in my life. Um, but it's been great because it's it's music that's really dear to me. So um, on the other side of that, though, there is another great podcast that I would highly recommend: the Cultivated Podcast, a podcast on the Christian faith and culture that I've been so good that I've been, um, I've been re listening to episodes while waiting for the the new season to come out. And he, the host whose name escapes me, uh, Mike Cosper. There we go. Mike Cosper. He hosted a band recently called the welcome wagon which is comprised of a husband and wife who began recording in 2007, I believe. Um, but after listening to their to their podcast episode, I started searching them up on Spotify and came upon their album titled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Mm. And... <laughs> I chose that one because it was the most striking title. And wouldn't you know it that the the music on the album is just as striking as in its dichotomy as the the title is. Because you don't normally see precious and Satan's devices in the same sentence. <laughs> um <laughs> The music, the only way I I was trying to describe it to a friend the other day, the music reminds me, I don't know if you guys listen to the band Bell and Sebastian. Oh yeah, I know them. Yeah, it's it's almost as if Bell and Sebastian were making worship music in a way. All the simple's not the right word, but just very 
very genuine music that is very honest. You know, the the first track on the album is I'm Not Fine. <laughs> but hmm. the tone of the album isn't one of of struggle. The tone of the album is one that looks up to Christ as the as they would put it, the the remedy to our struggle. Um and each song is it's quite different from the last and the the album is just full of neat and inventive instrumentations and really artful lyricism and i've been really thankful for its witness lately so i would highly recommend precious remedies against satan's devices by the welcome wagon that's awesome yeah that sounds amazing i literally just marked it on my spotify as you were talking awesome mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, that uh, that that title was um, remarkable to me because I recall a guy named Tim Keller. Not sure if you guys have heard of him, uh, <laughs> pastor, pastor in New York City. Uh, but he he mentions uh, the source material for that Thomas Brooks um, text. You know, precious remedies for Satan's devices, and it's actually from what I've heard Tim Keller talk about an incredibly um, insightful, like theologically sound text. So it's really cool that we have more current artists kind of repurposing that. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, Cody, don't stop for too long. What What's going on in your world? Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the coolest thing lately for me has been, um, I've been following ever since Forefront 2017. I've been following uh, Dr. Benjamin Myers, the the professor, poet, um, ex-poet laureate of Oklahoma, uh, who gave the keynote uh, speech at at the most recent Forefront Festival. Um, I got to have lunch with him that day, and I was just enthralled by this guy who's just a master of language and his art, and um, poetry is something near and dear to me. So... I've been following him on social media, and I, I'm sure some of you other guys saw this, but he, it looks like he's got a new book coming out um, yes. later this year called Black Sunday, the Dust Bowl Sonnet. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on that. Um, obviously, I can't speak much about it because it has not been published yet, but uh, I know that um, Dr. Myers cares deeply about uh, his home state of Oklahoma and the history there. And it's just such a rich place um, in the Dust Bowl, such a rich time um, to analyze and write about. Um, it, you know, reminds me of Grapes of Wrath, John Steinbeck. I mean, it's just like really, really cool stuff. Um, I'm sure it's going to be a, a great collection of, of work. And it actually, um, it drove me back to uh a little collection of Christian literature from Windhover publishers that I won at the Forefront Festival. And there's uh, one of Dr. Myers' poem, poems published there uh, titled The Communion of Saints in Obeyed. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I reread that several times uh, and I'm just astounded by, by uh, his appreciation for sensory imagery and um, if you guys remember, his keynote was really against Gnosticism, this um, over-spiritualization to the point of neglecting the physical. Um, and this is a man who appreciates the, the physical, which is, I think, something you need to be able to do if you're going to be a successful writer in any medium. And so 
Um, I, I plan on studying this guy uh, for a long time in, in the hopes of maybe learning something useful for, for my own uh, amateur career here. But, yeah, I, re I really admire that guy and encourage anyone listening to check out um, Ben Meyer's work. Uh, the, the new book is, again, um, going to be released this year titled Black Sunday, The Dust Bowl Sonnets. That's awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for that. Yeah, that is so cool, too. And it's just such a strange coincidence. When I saw um, Dr. Meyer's post on Facebook, the title of the book, I was like blown away because um, for those of you that don't know, I'm a teacher and I just recently finished showing the Ken Burns documentary on the Dust Bowl in one of my classes. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. Excellently put together um documentary by the way but i was just i had the idea of the dust bowl on my mind and then i saw that and i was like wow what are what a coincidence so i'm very excited to read that myself yeah you know, what's neat is that really all art is of a particular time and place i mean it, it is created in a particular time frame in a particular place by particular people but i think often the the lie that we believe is that we have to kind of generalize our art if it's going to be useful to future generations or if it's going to be you know really significant effective in a meta way we have to kind of keep everything general and high level uh, but what what dr myers teaches us so well is that it's actually by digging into the specifics digging into the physical mm -hmm. dealing in d digging in deep down to what's really there and, and specific and it's actually by doing that that we make work that's more meaningful and actually more significant um, in a bigger way. And I just, I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great. So true, Nate. It's, it's, especially when considering it. I mean, Dr. Myers is, you know, born and raised in Oklahoma from what I've read and still lives there. And so, yeah, this is obviously something that he's lived and experienced and also a place you don't always hear about. So. Uh, again, I, I totally agree with that. Really exciting um, stuff he's got going on. His latest collection, Laps Americana, is also fantastic. Yeah, I can second that. Um, I have a copy of it from the recent Forefront Festival, and every time I just open it up and go to any of it, I'm always scared to try and write anything because I feel like I can never get close to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what would Dr. Myers say to that, though? He'd say, he'd say I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> he might be listening now. Hi, Dr. Myers. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Myers. <laughs> Thank you for writing. I mean, one of my favorite poems in that collection is about his teeth. Hmm. His teeth? His teeth. I, if I'd known we were going to talk about this, I'd, I'd have brought the, the book in here. But, yeah. That's great. Well, good stuff. I'll um I'll sound off now. Um, so firstly, on a previous episode, I plugged Art House Press for you guys, and I just want to thank anyone who uh, heard that and went out and bought a copy because apparently every copy of Art House Press that was distributed in New York State has been sold. So if you live in New York wow. State and you listen to this podcast and went out and bought a copy, thank you on behalf of the whole Art House Press team. 
but yeah, I can um, vouch for that situation because I tried to buy it and couldn't find it. <laughs> yeah, same here. Same. All, all sold out. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I'm happy to hear that and also not happy to hear that. So maybe I can find a way to get you guys some copies, but I appreciate the interest. But um, magic, Rich. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so uh, what I want to talk about today is, uh, of all things, as a photographer, I want to talk about a shift in the aesthetic of Instagram. So I'm in the camp of photographers who sees Instagram as a really prime and legitimate medium for artists at all levels to visually represent themselves and their work. And I think that Instagram has been especially useful for us as Christians who traditionally have had uh, difficulty sort of breaking into the visual art scene in a meaningful way since, say, um, World War I. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> I think Instagram has and continues to, um, I guess, democratize and kind of equalize the photography scene uh, and the visual scene in general. So I'm all for Instagram. I'm on it far too many minutes a day, probably hours. Um, but yeah, so I'd like to bring to light the fact that I've noticed that the look of Instagram is changing again for the first time seriously since around 2014 or 2015. And now we're seeing photographers and artists and social media influencers that are really powerful on Instagram shifting to a look that's mimicking 35 millimeter color film from the early 80s, like types of photo film like Kodak Portra and like early Fujifilm 35 millimeter photographers who know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But um, <laughs> so basically what this looks like is a less exposed, um, so less crisp, uh, a little bit of faded image in comparison to what we're used to seeing in digital photography in the 21st century uh, with very warm, soft, and sometimes really rich color. And the lines in the image are softer than what we're used to seeing as well. So... This is really interesting because since about, again, 2014, 15, uh, Instagram, you know, generally shifted from its original um, sort of vibe, which was mimicking the Polaroid land camera. So we have Instagram started off when it first launched um, as, you know, people were criticizing it and making jokes because, you know, people were taking high quality images on their phones and with cameras and stuff and then putting Instagram filters over their images, which made the images significantly lower in visual quality. And, um, you know, by adding artificial light leaks and grain and things like that. But in 2014, we had a shift where Instagram users started um, eschewing Instagram's attached filters and using very crisp, high contrast images that um, you may have heard the phrase very bright whites. The what was like in vogue in photography for the past couple of years was extremely bright highlights and very black blacks. And now, at least in the Instagram world, I'm seeing that sort of shift, but we're not shifting back to a Polaroid look. We're going to kind of an easy medium where we still have very quality images as far as the actual visual quality, but um, color and line is a bit more uh, muddled now. And, um, 
this is really interesting because, well, in my opinion, unfortunate, but the media, if you Google this Instagram aesthetic changing or something like that, uh, you'll get a bunch of media sources that are saying, attributing this change to Kim Kardashian, who about a year ago came back from a short uh, social media hiatus after, I don't know the details, but something happened to her where she had things stolen in a hotel room in Paris or something. And she went off social media for three or four months and then came back um, with a completely different aesthetic, uh, which was this film-based aesthetic. And this is now trickling down even to the most common of us uh, photographers and Instagrammers. Um, Yeah, so I just think that this is, on one hand, I think this is funny because, um, again, we started on Instagram as kind of a chintzy, like, digital mimic of, like, 70s-era Polaroid stuff. Um, then we had a complete 180 and serious photographers and social media influencers got a hold of the app and moved the aesthetic to, you know, a very contemporary vibe. And now even that, you know, per usual has become boring. And now, um, users are blending the two again into, you know, a new look. So, Yeah. So if you're on Instagram or if you use your phone for photography, my first tip would be if you don't use the app VSCO or Visco Visual Supply Company, get that right now. And if you've been using a really crisp filter like A4 or A6 on that app, you might want to switch to something maybe in the mood series. So filters to start with M or P. That's what I'm seeing out there on Instagram. I'm also seeing that, interestingly, I went to a gallery in Pittsburgh a few weeks ago, and I saw a series of portraits, and I could have sworn that all the photos were taken um, with either 35 millimeter portra or maybe with a medium format film camera. And when I, you know, read the little placard, everything was taken with uh, the new iPhone. So that really threw me for a loop. So with these with these filters, we can very very accurately mimic not only the film aesthetic, but specific types of film, which I think is really cool and interesting. So, um, yeah. So those of you that are photographers out there or just Instagrammers or social media people, keep an eye out for that shift. And if you want to jump on it, go ahead. If you want to do your own thing, you do you as well. So <laughs> yeah, if you want, if you want to see if an easy way to see what I'm talking about, maybe you can, I, I've switched filters on my Instagram. I'm uh, my handle is just my name, Richard Christman. If you want to look at that, um, yeah. Although my feed is nothing special, you could probably find better stuff in your explore. But hey, thanks for listening. So, so Rich, when you see a trend like this, do you like to hop on or do you like to buck the trend? Well, I guess I think it depends on the trend, but I think that especially when it comes to an Instagram like medium where what we're sort of the primary focus of it is to get as many viewers and likers as possible. I tend to jump on when I can in. uh, So, I mean, in my personal history, as far as photography in 2013, I um, switched over my Instagram and all of my, you know, physical, tangible printed fine art photos to very thin, um, you know, like 16 by nine, uh, ratio prints. Cause that was really in at that point. And then in, you know, 2014, 
I uh, totally shifted the look of my Instagram. If anyone's bored enough to scroll all the way down to there on my feed, it drastically changes in the way that I was talking about before. And uh, so I, I started shifting my filters just like two weeks ago. So I guess I do jump on these things. But, you know, conversely, in um, in my more tangible photography, in the stuff I was able to showcase at Forefront Festival 2017, if any of you saw that or for those of you that didn't, I did um, – I had fairly large photos printed on sheets of steel. So that's something that I had not seen um, you know, out in the world, I wasn't sort of mimicking anyone with that. That was an idea that I had myself. Turns out since I did that, I've seen other artists doing that. So guess I'm not as original as I want to be, but, um, <laughs> but I, I still, still loved the work and I was proud to do that and be able to have forefront as an opportunity to show those off. So, um, yeah. Cool. Thanks Rich. It's interesting how, visual looks uh, like like certain types of film never really die they just go in and out of mainstream over time yeah it's almost like if we graphed it i'm sure it would look like a roller coaster but um yeah but i yeah. i think the the thing to really take away from this is uh i i do think i do love as a photographer i do love the medium like i said before for the um sort of the equality that it brings like any, any person regardless of your connections or your um i mean the amount of money that you have or whatever you can put yourself up for anyone to see which i think is really great um i i remember before i was really like out on the internet um i was doing photography you know in high school and i i remember thinking to myself like wow unless i make you know powerful friends or something. I'm never going to get my photos seen by anybody outside of, you know, my school. Um, and even though I've been blessed with opportunities to do that, um, I, I just think it's cool that the internet in various forms is allowing us to share even this podcast right now. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So let's move on. Let's talk to Nate about his, absolutely brilliantly written if i may say uh blog article entitled again how movie sequels succeed or fail at character arcs so i uh i had to read your post nate a few times over because i think that it was just so you you fits you condense so many meaningful thoughts into you know a a reasonably length post and I, I read it a few times, and I feel like now I have a good handle on it. So thank you for taking the time to share with us that post. So let me let me Absolutely. start by asking you a question. Yeah, let me start by asking you, what was your – I know you're into film and all this, but what was your inspiration for writing this particular sequel-related article? Yeah, so I, I do. I, I love film. I love filmmaking. Uh, I make movies myself whenever I can, and – I do it uh, in, a, in, a, in a particular way for my, my job. And I love movie sequels. I mean, I love some movie sequels. I hate other movie sequels. Uh, but I love the idea of a sequel, and I, and I really want sequels to be good. And I think that's a, a common 
thought that, that people have, you know, sequels are something that people are passionate about. People have strong feelings about sequels. They're, they're polarizing. Uh, when a new sequel comes out, everybody's talking about, you know, oh, I loved it. It was great. Amazing continuation. Or, oh, I hated it. You know, they ruined the characters. They went in the complete wrong direction. It was horrible. Um, so, you know, people have really strong feelings about it. And so I wanted to really dig into that topic and say, you know, what what is it about a sequel that, that makes it work or not work? What makes it good or bad? Um, what What really makes a successful sequel? Because... If, if we could really dig into that, if we could really understand the factors involved, then the next time that we see a movie sequel, we could evaluate it on those terms and we could say, you know, how did this sequel do with those kind of underlying factors? Um, and that might help us kind of decide in our mind whether it, whether it worked or not. And then also for, for those of us who may be creators who may have the opportunity to make a sequel to a work of art, whether that's a movie or another art form, you're really understanding the underlying causes between what makes a sequel work or not work is going to, is going to ultimately help us make better art when we, when we have a piece of art that's continuing upon another. So I really wanted to dig into that. It's, it's a topic that fascinates me. Um, and I know that everybody's always talking about the latest movie sequel. And so it would just be a fun topic to, to dive into. Yeah, well, that's great. I agree. I, I love that you were able to, let me just sound off again. I love that you were able to sort of set forth for us. Like, I feel like I now have a rubric in order to judge. Like next time I go to see a sequel to a movie, <laughs> I'm like ready to decide whether this sequel was um, well executed or kind of a haphazard thing like we got with the good old dead man's chest. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I, uh, I'll open it up to the whole team here. Any of you guys have any questions you want to ask Nate? I do have a question and it, it, you addressed, I think part of it already, Nate, but what I was wondering is, you know, when a character is changing, which I think is one of the important things that you do want to see, um, in any movies you want to see progression of character um, or character development, I guess is is the term, you know, you mentioned that there could be a bad development. So like if a character either reverts to who they used to be and kind of you lose what happened in the previous movie, or if they just randomly change, those aren't good changes, but you do expect to see some change. And what I was wondering is how, or or what, what are your thoughts on if a character is changing, should the sequel movie also be, somewhat different from the initial movie. So perhaps the character is, um, you know, like an action hero. The movie itself is maybe somewhat violent. Um, but by the end of the movie, the, the character's development is, is such that they start to question the morality of that violence. You know, maybe they have some empathy for their opponents. In a situation like that, should the, should the sequel not be considered an action movie? Should we kind of be prepared to see sequels take a different direction entirely? Um, you know, what are your what are your thoughts on handling that type of change to the movie itself to match the change within the character? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I think first off, on the the slightly negative end, we can all probably think about a number of movie franchises where it spawned tons and tons of sequels, and the sequels are basically the same as the original in style and form and basically what the movie is like is very similar to the original, uh, something like a, a James Bond or a fast and furious or, you know, things like that. It's, it's kind of a, a, a classic action thriller movie, 
But then as they continue to spawn more sequels, they're just more and more action thrillers, more of the same. And so we might enjoy those movies. I mean, you might go to the theater and say, hey, I had a good time. But you probably wouldn't say to to one of those movies like, oh, that was such an incredible sequel. It really moved the characters forward. So, you know, I, I would agree that if you literally just have the same format to every movie in a series and you don't have the boldness and the courage to potentially change course a bit, you're probably going to end up in a place like that where every movie is pretty much just like the one before because you don't have the courage to actually take your character somewhere and keep them on a, a new trajectory. But um, I, I do think there are movies that do this well, and, and it doesn't have to completely change the genre of the film. So, for example, like you were saying with an action thriller, you don't have to have an action thriller where the main character is you know, going all out, killing everybody. But then by the end, like, he realizes, like, oh, man, this is wrong. And then the next movie is just, like, a romantic comedy, right? <laughs> like, it, like, it, it, <laughs> like it, doesn't have to, it doesn't have to, like, you know, completely change course. I think that, that would be pretty ridiculous. But I think there are ways that um, you can take that character development and actually make the genre better than it was before and actually go deeper. So in your example, you've got an action hero. He's pretty violent. He's, he's killing people. And then he has some character development where he starts to question his actions. I think that actually provides an opportunity for a better action movie. It's still an action movie, but it's a better action movie because you have a conflicted hero. You have a hero who is actually considering his actions and thinking about good and evil. Um, And so I think a good example of that would be, like uh, I mentioned in this blog post, the Bourne series. You look at something like the Bourne Ultimatum. The Bourne Ultimatum takes place after Jason Bourne has started questioning his actions and started to question who he is, question what's right and wrong, and he started to really start to learn mercy. But he's still this kind of action hero guy who grew up as an assassin. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you do with that? And, and basically what it is is he, he still has a lot of amazing action sequences and does amazing stunts and, and wins battles and stuff, but like he, he basically tries to not kill people like (laughs) when people come after him he's very rarely just like dispatching them he's usually trying to just like knock them out and like get out of my way but he's not Mm -hmm. trying to kill people he's trying to get to his objective and and do it with with a set of morals and i think that's actually more compelling um, even than an action hero who doesn't think about it yeah actually just just thinking about what you said there he also changes a little bit from leave me alone and let me survive to I'm going to try and shut this down at the top. You know, like he kind of takes action against the leadership instead of just trying to knock off as many henchmen as he can, um, which is also, I think, yeah. like you said, it makes the movie itself better. Yeah, he's actually trying to stop the cycle of violence, and he's going to take the actions that he needs to in order to make that happen. Cody, I cut you off earlier. Do you want to go ahead? Yeah, no, that's really great. Um, I, my question um, that just kind of came to me is wondering... If there, in your mind, Nate, are any other major storytelling decisions besides character arcs that can make or break a sequel? Because the the post, the argument you present is so compelling to me that it's hard for me to think of, like, uh, other other techniques that um, are so vital to a story um, beyond character arcs. So 
Are there any, you mentioned uh, budget and um, who's directing as, as some of the things that are usually constant, but are there other major storytelling decisions that can make or break a sequel besides character arcs? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there definitely are. I, I think that when you when you look at a film, you do kind of go back to the core and say, ultimately, this started from a script. And so a lot of it takes place there. But but then it makes its way into storyboards and it makes its way into production. Um, and you're actually working with actors and locations. And then you're in the editing room and you're actually kind of crafting the story in the editing room as well. So there's so many places where storytelling takes place and where storytelling gets adapted throughout the process. And I think character arcs are probably the biggest thing I would say from a scripting perspective that you should focus mm -hmm. on for a sequel. Uh, but there are definitely other things. Um, I, I think, you know, think, thinking about... Uh, casting is massive because there are a lot of films where you look at what's happening to the character and you're like, you know what? That's like a pretty compelling character arc. Like I totally see what they were going for. Um, but, but, but the actor's just not portraying it in a believable way. And so it falls flat. Um, or another mm -hmm. example might be, the um, the character arc is compelling in and of itself, but the way it's written is written in such a didactic way uh, without subtext to the point where you see everything coming. You can kind of, you're like, okay, I can see what's happening next. I see where the story's going. It's kind of all predictable in your head. Nothing's happening beneath the surface. Um, and so I think you're really getting out into the world and saying, how do people actually talk? How do people actually interact? And making sure that what we put in the script and, and bring to the screen is, is actually how people really interact and we're not actually revealing the deeper motives all the time. The deeper motives might be underneath the surface and those might be something that the audience has to figure out for themselves. So I think mm -hmm. there are a lot of pieces to making a, a compelling sequel, but I, but I think you know really trying to think about subtext um, and really trying to place that into a good character arc and making sure that the characters are casted properly to bring that, that scripting, that thoughtful scripting forward is, is all incredibly important. And then the things that go on top of that, uh, when, when you start talking about things like the, 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 the locations and the effects work and things like that, that's all super important because if that goes wrong, you notice it. Uh, but it's not the <laughs> core of, of what the story is. Mm, that's so good, yeah. And it's interesting, your response is geared specifically to the film, um, the film world, which is uh, probably varies as you jump from uh, medium to medium, but that's really great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think if you, if you look at something like literature uh, or you look at something like uh, theatrical plays, a lot of the same basic ideas apply, but 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 the execution is is obviously going to vary to a large extent. And I think it's a little bit a little bit more difficult to apply the rules of sequels to music and photography and visual art. But I'm sure this, I'm sure there's like aspects that any artist could take from what you put forth into just continuing work after mm -hmm. you've even if it's not directly a sequel, you know, like following up a work that you've already done that might have been a success, you know, there, there are a lot of elements 
that make it sort of sequel-like, even if your follow-up production has nothing to do with the one before. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought one of my biggest takeaways from your post, Nate, was just like the the essence of of growth that is required in a sequel. And like, not to make this too meta, but how that relates to really like our human experience that as you grow and get older, you learn more, you, you change, you don't stay the same ideally. Um, Yeah. 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 It's, it's really true. I do think that sequels actually do kind of tell us something about ourselves and reveal something about our own human nature and how we grow and develop. And I think when we see a sequel that we, we don't like or a sequel that doesn't work for us, a lot of the, the time, the reason it doesn't work for us is because when we look at it, we go, that just, that doesn't make sense. Like that, that's not how it would go. Like they, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't think that way. Like, wait, they, they've already learned that or whatever. Like we're like screaming at the screen, like, no, don't do that. Like, you know, better than that. Like you just learned that in the previous movie. Um, and it's, so I, I know that, you know, we, we look at that and, and it doesn't, it doesn't accord with the reality that we know of ourselves where like we know how our experiences shape us and we want the experiences of the characters on screen to shape them as well. We remember the original film. We want the characters to remember the original film too. (laughs) We want them to remember the past and, and learn from it, you know? And I think that's, that's a really important thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so well said. This is a smaller detail, Nate, but I was also wondering, when you've finished watching a movie, how do you personally discern, that was great, don't touch it, doesn't need a sequel, it's great as is, or that was great, that deserves a sequel, or that would be bettered by another continuation of the story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really important question to ask, and it's unfortunately a question that, that really very rarely gets asked in on those terms a lot of times there are so many other factors at play such that sequels Mm -hmm. get greenlit based on the fact that oh audiences wanted one or oh the studio wants one or it's, it's rarely because oh this just it just needs to happen from an artistic perspective right so mm-hmm. I, I do think it's really interesting to dig into that artistic perspective and say you know artistically like what what is it that that makes something worthy of a sequel that makes something worth continuing and I think a lot of that does happen on on kind of a case by case basis. You know, sometimes when you're when you're kind of meditating on a story or thinking about a story that you're writing or have written or something that you've seen, you, and you start to think in your mind like, oh, what what happened next for that character? Like, what what happened next to them? And you and you start coming mm-hmm. up with ideas, and you're like, oh, I can imagine like what happened after that, and how interesting that would have been. And man, I would love to have seen that. I think that that just that happens to us when we read stories and when we watch movies. And I think if that happens, that's a good sign that you know that that might be something that's that's worthy of a sequel. But I think when something just gets wrapped up really well in the original and everything just kind of comes to kind of the place that it should be mm-hmm. and and we just feel like okay hey that's it um if that's how it feels i think i think a better way to go might be to say hey could we do 
could we do a spinoff of some kind? Could we do, you know, could other things happen in this world that mm-hmm. are compelling w- within this universe that's been created or, or within this basic plot line? Um, but maybe we leave these characters be. They've had their story, but maybe there are other characters in the same world that, you know, other things are going on that are compelling that deserve a story. You know, so I think that's keeping keeping an open mind about that um, and, and not saying, hey, we always have to bring back the same characters uh, all the time allows you to, to have the ability to sometimes just put to rest characters who have had their story and are, in, are now in, in a place where they should be. Mm-hmm. Nate, are you about to start talking about The Last Jedi again? Yeah, it's getting some distinct Star Wars vibes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't planning on it, but hey, if anybody wants to, uh, we just did a long podcast on The Last Jedi. You can go right back in your podcast feed and listen to an hour and a half of us wax lyrical about Star Wars The Last Jedi. <laughs> and even that only scratches the salty surface of crate. just barely put it to the tip of your tongue and gareth edwards looks at you and says why are you doing that (laughs) hey thanks so much nate um before we close up does anyone have any more questions no i don't i would just i would just say uh, i think that when you see a really good sequel it makes you realize how much the creators really understood the original. Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating yes. that, that sometimes creators don't really understand their original work enough to make a sequel. And sometimes they do. And I think a great example of this is the one that I mentioned in the blog entry, uh, Toy Story 2. Such an incredible sequel. And it's it's a sequel that you can tell the creators just understood the original so well they knew the characters they created they knew where the characters were at they knew where they needed to go um just that that subtle that subtlety of knowing that the character of woody had come to a better place in the original film he had learned to share the spotlight but he still had insecurities and like what would those insecurities be and how can we craft a story that's going to press on those insecurities and and make those come out um, and so it's it's amazing because like in some ways it's similar in some ways it's like okay well Woody's still dealing with insecurity but it's it's in such a it's such a deep way because it's not it's not the same it's different than the original but it's the same kind of thing and I think we see that in our own lives all the time right where we we, we move beyond one thing and we, we get a little bit better and we're like okay now I see that fault I, I you know I, I'm trying to move beyond that. But then like another one springs up that has the same root cause. It's like whack-a-mole, right? It's like, man, I, I'm, a, I'm a prideful person and pride came out in this way and I smashed it. But then, oh, pride comes out in this other way. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 characters, the characters do that as well. And I just, I think when you're a creator, you know your characters well enough to be able to see where their faults lie and, and, and what needs to happen for them to be, moved forward uh, in a deeper way when it comes to that next installment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what you said there, Nate, because it almost it almost sounds like what it means to walk with Christ, right? I mean, as Christians, we grow, you know, over time, and maybe we get, you know, certain areas of our life under control, quote-unquote, or we get certain sins kind of reined in or something like that, but um, there's always something else uh, that pops up that God is ready to reveal to us. And 
um, I don't think it's too far to say that that's um, that that's something Christian artists especially should be thoughtful of. I think in a, in a discussion like that with film and art in general. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Totally agree. Nate, I would love to. Um, if if you don't have any ideas for your next blog post, I would love for your mind <laughs> to just go off on the topic of reboots and um, remakes, and that, that's something obviously that's just flooded uh, the cinema in recent years, and it sounds like there's a whole science to what makes a successful reboot and remake, and, and there's maybe only one, one way, one move more dangerous to a story than making a sequel of it. You know how you cringe when you hear there's a sequel of a, a story that's already great, and that's mm. a remake of a story that's already great, and so it sounds like there are even fewer successful reboots than there are sequels even. So uh, I would love, you know, someday to hear, uh, you know, you do your thing on that topic, but that's perhaps for another day. Well, thanks. I mean, briefly what I would say about reboots is reboots are fine. I mean, I'm totally for them if, for one thing, it's a really good story, right? Because some stories aren't worth rebooting. So it's got to be a good story. Uh, And then also, if you can do justice to the original concept while also bringing something new to the table, um, and not Mm -hmm. just like, oh, well, the the, the original was shot on film, but now we can shoot digital. Like, not, I don't mean new like that. I mean, new like it's something significant. Like, oh, hey, in the past, there was this original film that had, it was great, but it had like a lot of overacting. What if we did it, you know, again, but like, what if there was subtlety and depth? Like, Okay, that that's a reason to maybe, you know, remake a story. And then also, like, has it been long enough since the original mm. incarnation or since the previous incarnation? You know, if you're rebooting every five years, you know, I, I'm looking at you, Marvel. Um, <laughs> then, like, I was waiting for that to come out. <laughs> That then you know you you might you might want to rethink because one of the great things about reboots is they introduce a great story to a new generation, and -hmm. if there hasn't been a new generation yet, if you're still on the same generation, (laughs) why why do you need to reintroduce the story? So you know maybe consider spacing (laughs) reboots out uh, twenty to thirty years apart. (laughs) If those considerations aren't met, I'd recommend not making the reboot. Just to throw this out there, I feel like the the pinnacle of reboot excellence would be if someone could successfully reboot the Princess Bride. Um, oh I feel gosh. like oh. I feel like nothing would blow me away more than a successful reboot of that movie because of how great it is for all the unique and quirky things that happen in it and the actors and everything else. Yeah, so I just want, I I feel like that could be really really poorly done and everyone would cringe. But if someone could pull that off, that would be super cool. What an incredible challenge. That would be, yeah. That that'd be like if you are a very overconfident director and you say, you know what, I'm just going to show the world that I know how to do everything perfectly. Here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that that sounds almost as challenging as JJ Abrams making Episode Nine. Yeah. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we're back on Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what I've learned is the two movies that have recently come out that hit all of those points would you know, as a great and worthy reboot would definitely be both uh, Baywatch and Jumanji. Yes, for sure. Fantastic. We'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Well, thanks again so much, Nate. 
And hey, any listeners, if you've tuned in this far and you still haven't read Nate's blog post, you can find that on the Forefront blog, or you could listen to it on this podcast, Forefront 360. Uh, Nate reads his article aloud in our first blog entry episode, which has already been posted to iTunes and Google Play. So keep engaging with meaningful things, keep creating, and keep pursuing the only one who can give us real meaning. Until next time, goodbye from all of us on the Forefront team. Adios. See you next time. Bye-bye.